So we're uh, finishing up tonight this sermon series that we've been in since the beginning of the year in uh, this great letter from the Apostle Paul, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, as we've seen, it's also a letter that almost certainly got passed around from the church in Ephesus to all kinds of other churches so that other people in the ancient world could hear what God is doing and could hear uh, God's word under the influence of the Spirit as the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. So we're going to spend a few minutes this morning or this evening looking at the text that was just read, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. Um, so this is the final part of this letter, and in many ways, Paul is he's reaching the apex. It's like the crest of a wave. Um, I don't know if, uh, if you have seen a lot of movies in your life, but there's a lot of good movies at which the, uh, the, the kind of the pinnacle scene of the movie, the apex of the movie is, is a speech where a certain character or a hero is trying to pump up the people. Uh, my favorite example, and trust me, I spent no less than three hours maybe on YouTube figuring out which my favorite one was. Probably not really three hours, but I did. you can get lost in YouTube really quickly. Braveheart. Braveheart, the end of the movie Braveheart, William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, is wearing, you know, the war paint and all the armies there ready to go fight um, the oppressors, the evil English oppressors, and they're scared and they're nervous, and William Wallace comes in on his horse, and he fires them up, man, and I love that line where he says, they may take our lives with this Scottish brogue, you know, they may take our lives, I'm not going to try the Scottish thing, but they'll never take our freedom. And everybody, yeah, 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 and they rush into battle. That's, that's in many ways what Paul is doing here for the people that initially read this letter. He's closing things out with a word of encouragement that's intended really to excite the people of God into mission. It's excited to pump them up. It's, it's intended to, to motivate them to strive and to stand firm against the evil one, to fight with everything that they can for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus. It's a text that's intended to get you excited and to get you pumped up and to make you want to go out and, you know, kind of like how I felt after I saw Braveheart for the first time. I just wanted to run through a wall, you know. I wanted to tear apart a phone book. I was excited. Those things didn't happen, but I wanted to do it, man. That's what Paul's wanting us to hear and wanting us really, I think, to feel tonight. As I mentioned, this is the end of this letter. He's written some amazing things. Ephesians is an amazing letter. The first half of the letter, he's saying, listen, this is the gospel. If you want to know what Christianity is about, listen to Ephesians 1 through 3. Just read the letter. It'll take you about eight minutes to read that. It says that we are all broken and rebellious. We have all sinned against God. But despite that, God, in his great love for us, doesn't condemn us for our sin, but he sent Jesus. And Jesus on the cross doesn't just die the death of a normal Jewish guy 2,000 years ago in Rome, but in the death of Jesus, God is judging human sin. And in the resurrection of Jesus, Ephesians tells us, we see proof that Jesus' sacrifice for us is sufficient to pay for all of our sins. And because that's true, Paul tells the Ephesians, and Paul tells us, because that's true, God is creating in Jesus one new people that we call the church. The church is, is a social impossibility. People that don't belong together at all. Black and white people, Jewish and Gentile people, Pagan people and religious people all coming together through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this 
society, this organization, this people, the church, is God's way of extending his kingdom in the world. And in the last half of Ephesians, Paul talks about practically what it looks like to live in light of those great truths. We spent some time in the last few weeks talking about what it means to live in light of the gospel, what it means to walk worthily of the calling that we have received. We've looked at very important issues like our marriages and our parenting and our obeying our parents. And tonight, again, Paul is rounding things out by calling us to action in the battle that we fight against the enemy. And if you could sum up the whole point of this text, perhaps you want to do it this way. Well, this is how I want to do it. So if you remember one thing tonight, this is the thing to remember. The strength we need to stand against the enemy we face comes from God's armor. Okay, The strength we need to stand against the enemy we face comes from God's armor. Three points. The strength we need, the enemy we face, and the armor God gives. Okay, The strength we need, the enemy we face, the armor God gives. Look, look, look with me in the text. In verse 10, we see, finally, finally at the end, as a preacher, never say finally in a sermon, because then everyone, boom, checks out immediately. He's almost done what's for lunch or dinner. But Paul does it anyway. Finally, be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We need strength. If you're here and you're a Christian, if you're here and you've placed faith in Jesus and you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that living the Christian life requires of you strength. It's a difficult thing. And Paul understands that here. In verse 12, he says, we wrestle. And that word wrestle was a word that was used of ancient Olympians who were, you know, literally hand-on-hand wrestling in the Colosseum. It's a word that's similar to the word that was used of gladiators who fought with short swords, one-on-one, mano-a-mano, right? Uh, it's, so the, the, the idea here is that the strength we need is, is a big sort of strength. It's a, it's a mighty sort of might because the battle that we're fighting in this life is intense. It's grueling. It's difficult. It's hard. Now, if you're here and you're new to Christianity, if you're a young Christian, if you're not a Christian and you want to know a little bit about Christianity, then let me just stop for one second and tell you this. Becoming a Christian will not make all of your problems go away. At least not right away. Becoming a Christian actually um, is, is not like taking a magical potion and poof, a God fairy shows up and magically wisps away all of the issues that you're facing. No, 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 no. The Christian life is, is often in the Bible described as, as a life that is a battle. It's a life that is a war. It's a life that requires strength. And so you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're hearing that, you think, well, I want no part of that life. Why would I want to be a Christian? Well, that always reminds me of a friend, a dear friend I have at our previous church that we served at in Tucson. This man's in his mid-60s, and uh, he has a wonderful story. And uh, he would often, when he and I would spend time together with non-Christians doing evangelism and seeking to talk to them about the gospel, which is something we did do regularly in the ministry of our church, he would always tell his story. And his story sort of went like this. This is the way he would tell it. He would say, I was living a life of, of rebellion against God, and my life was, I'm telling you, it was miserable. He got saved in his mid-30s, and he said, I hit rock bottom. 
I had nowhere else to go. My wife had left me. I had no job. I was in a new city. I had nothing planned, nothing to do, no idea what my future held until a friend came and told me about Jesus and I began reading the New Testament. I got down on my knees and confessed my sin and said, I want Jesus to save me and I became a Christian. And then guess what happened? Everything got worse. He thought he had hit rock bottom, but, but when he became a Christian, in some ways, things begin to get even more difficult. But here's what he would say, and this is the key. Even though things for a time got harder, I knew that I wasn't alone. I knew that I had a strength residing in me that wasn't inherent to me. I knew that Jesus was now my friend and not my enemy, and that allowed me to get through. See, we need strength. And Paul tells us in these verses that we should be strong, but we should be strong in the Lord. We should have strength in whose might? In his might. God provides us in the gospel of Jesus with the strength that we need to fight against the enemy we face. Listen, what's going on in your life right now where you feel like you have insufficient strength capacities? What's taken place in your life in the past week or month or year that has rendered you in your own power completely useless and powerless? Think about that. Is it it your marriage that seems to really be struggling and you don't know where to go? Is it your children who are acting in ways that you would not want them to act and you don't know what to do without alienating them further? Is it children, your parents, who you seem to think are, are being overly strict towards you and not being fair towards you? Is it, is it your work life? You don't know about your job security. Or is it, is it financial stress? You don't know how you're going to pay the bills this month, much less next month. Is it just a sense of loneliness and apathy? You wish that you really had some friends that knew you and understood you. Whatever it is, we all come to times in our life where we realize very vividly, very concretely, that we need a strength that we can't provide in and of ourselves. That's what Paul's saying here. He's implying in these verses that we need a strength, a strength that the Lord gives. We need it when we face difficulty, and we also need it because the enemy that is opposed to us is strong. So we see the strength we need. Secondly, I want to talk to you about the enemy we face. Look there at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, there's that word, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, you need strength from the Lord because the enemy you face is much stronger than you, even in your best moments. I'm reminded of the Lord of the Rings often. Um, I'm reminded of it again here. Uh, In the second book, no, first book, Fellowship of the Ring, uh, when Gandalf the wizard is taking the fellowship, Bilbo, uh, Frodo the hobbit, and Sam, and Aragorn through the mines of Moria, and things aren't going super well for them at this point anyway, and then they hear, this is really awesome in the movies, It's, it's always better in the book, but it's really cool in the movies, they hear all of a sudden this pounding, and it's the huge demon, the Balrog, I know, this is super nerdy. It's just who I am. I'm going to be honest. Super nerdy, okay? 
that the Balrog comes out and they all kind of look at, look at each other with fear in their eyes and Gandalf, the wise old wizard, says, this is an enemy far too powerful for any of you. That's exactly the case with our true enemy. Listen, we need a strength that's supernatural because we don't fight an enemy who's natural. We fight an enemy who's supernatural. If our enemy was natural, you know, we have lawyers for that. We have doctors for that. We have strategic business meetings for that. We can handle natural enemies. But what Paul's saying here is that our real enemy is a spiritual force, a spiritual person, Satan himself, along with his great army of demons. Yes, those are real. And his schemes are against us. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. He's a cheat. And I hate him. But he's coming for us. Paul says that you have to be on guard against the schemes of the devil. And I think it would be helpful for us to think a little bit about, maybe to do a little bit of reconnaissance, you know, like good soldiers. What are the schemes of the devil? How does he come at us? What sort of strategy in the attack does the enemy have? Let me just tell you a couple. And I get a lot of these, by the way, from a guy named Thomas Brooks, who's a 17th century dead guy. He's a Puritan, and he wrote a great book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's one of my all-time favorite books. Make a note on that. It's about 140 pages, and it's hard to read. But if you plow your way through it, trust me, it's worth it. Um, so a lot of this comes from Brooks. He talks about the schemes of the devil and how we know, when we know how he comes at us, we'll better be able to, our, to defend ourselves. So how does Satan attack you? How does Satan come at the church of God? The first and I think the foremost way that Satan attacks us is by wanting us to remember our sins more than our Savior. He wants us to feel condemned. He wants us to experience guilt. You know, that's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden way back in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. He, he called into question for them God's goodness. Remember what he says to Eve? He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? Implication. God isn't good. God doesn't love you. God's just out for himself. He doesn't give a rip about you. He did the same thing to Jesus in the desert. He said, Jesus, if God really, you know, if you really are the son of God, jump off. Surely God will save you. He's calling into question there God's goodness. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt that God is for him. He's trying to make Jesus see that God is against him. And that's exactly what he does with us. Do you ever have moments in your life where deep in your inner person you think, there's no way I can truly be a Christian because of the things that I keep on struggling with. I mean, there is just no way that God really loves me because I never seem to grow. I still face these same issues that I've been facing for years. And you get down on yourself. You feel bad about yourself. You think I'm not worthy. I don't want to show my face around Christians. I don't want to be authentic. I don't want to live in community. That is the devil coming for you. It's not true. He's scheming against you, trying to help you remember more your sins than your Savior. Another scheme of the devil is this. He makes you think that the life of unbelief is much more desirable than the life of belief. You ever have moments like that? A lot of the times when I'm around my non-Christian friends and family members, and I kind of get into their lives a little bit, and I realize, man, they spend their money on whatever they want. 
they don't have to like give money away to the poor and to the church and be generous. They, they have a romantic relationships, shall we say, with whoever they want. They're just, they're just pursuing a life of pleasure and loving every minute of it. And I'm stuck here trying to be a Christian, trying to like obey the Bible and go to church when I could be doing something else. Man, this stinks. You know what? They have it a lot better. I'm constrained. They're free. I've got it bad and they've got it good. That is a lie of the devil. He's coming for you with his schemes. Another way the devil schemes against us is when he makes us believe that repentance is an impossibly hard thing to do. Let me just read this from Brooks. This is from the Precious Remedies. I can't top this, so I'm just going to read it. Here's what he writes. Listen. He's speaking for the devil here. Now, says Satan, do but a little consider your numberless sins and the greatness of your sins, the foulness of your sins, the heinousness of your sins, the circumstances of your sins, and you shall easily see that those sins that you thought to be but molehills are indeed mountains. And is it not now in vain to repent of them? Surely, says Satan, if you should seek repentance and grace with tears, you shall not find it. Your sand has run through the hourglass, your sun has set, the door of mercy is shut, and now you have despised mercy. You'll you'll forever be destroyed by justice. For such a wretch as you are to attempt repentance is to attempt a thing impossible. It's impossible that you, that in all your life could never conquer one sin, should master such a numberless number of sins which are so near, so dear, so necessary, and so profitable to you that you have so long bedded and boarded with them, that they have for so long been old acquaintances and companions with you. Do you ever have conversations like that in your head? Those are the schemes of the evil one. He is seeking to make you doubt that you have any power in Jesus to win any battle against sin. Your sins are too great, Satan wants you to believe. It's impossible. Don't even try to repent. The final scheme of the evil one is maybe another one of the most vicious, insidious, and important. He wants us as a people to bite and to devour one another. As Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, I think verse 15. Listen, God is, God is up to something here in this place at Christ Church. God is doing good work. He is here reminding us and teaching us in deeper and deeper ways that the gospel is true. He's bringing new people. He's creating new relationships. We're seeing our sin more deeply, and yet we're also seeing God's grace more deeply. We're moving forward in mission. People are going to start getting saved We're going to see people hearing the gospel and coming to know Jesus. God is at work here. Listen, the devil hates that. And very, very soon, if not already, the devil will come to this place or send one of his demons and he will go after us. And the way he will do that, other than the things that we've already mentioned, is by making us think of one another. You know, I'm all in, but that person's not really all in. I've been working really hard in the music ministry, and those people haven't done a dang thing. You know what? My community group is, you know, it's okay, but that person really just drives me crazy, and I can't stand it when they make the same prayer request again and again and again. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you know that so-and-so is from there? 
you know, I was thinking this about that person. What do you think about that? That is coming. He wants us to stab each other in the back. He wants us to talk about each other when the other person isn't present. He wants us to think ill thoughts of one another. The last thing the devil wants is for us to see the glorious people that God is making us in the gospel. He is after us. His schemes are strong, they're crafty, they're cunning, and they're powerful. Listen, the devil is the enemy that we face, and he is powerful. He is a liar. He is strong, and he's coming for you. He's coming for me. He's after my family. He's after your families. He hates everything that is happening when new churches start. The last thing he wants is for ears to hear the gospel of Jesus. His attacks are coming. And we cannot handle them on our own. There's a strength we need. There's an enemy we face. But thankfully, thankfully, there is an armor that we wear. Look back in the passage. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor. Whose armor? The whole armor of God. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Put on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given you by the gospel of peace, etc., etc., etc. We don't have time to spend on each and every piece of our armor. And so the main thing I want you to get is this. The armor of God is not your armor. The armor of God is God's armor given to you. Notice what the text tells us. The text says that it's God's armor, and it also says, stand, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. It doesn't say stand and put on the belt of truth. It says that if you are a believer in Jesus, if you're connected to Jesus by faith, you already have in the gospel his armor. You just have to realize it and make use of it. You see, in a sense, what Paul's saying when he's talking about us putting on the armor of God is just another metaphor of him describing the realities that are ours through faith in Jesus Christ. It's another way of saying what he said back in chapter 1, that through faith, all spiritual blessings, remember? Chapter 1, verse 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. Paul's saying here, you have everything you need to stand against the enemy you face, and it comes through your belief in Jesus as he's offered to you in the gospel. So don't put it on. You've already put it on, he says. Having put it on, having put on the belt of truth, stand, make use of it. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, stand, make use of it. The question is how, right? How do we use the weaponry and the armor that is already ours to stand against the enemy we face? Well, here's how. Let me just give you a couple of examples. When Satan wants you to see your sins more than your Savior, remember we just talked about that. That's one of the ways he attacks us. When he's in your head, so to speak, telling you you're too guilty, you're too dirty, God doesn't love you, no one needs to know your past, and if they did, they would They would never talk to you again. That's when you strap on the breastplate of righteousness in your heart. You say, no, that is a lie. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is mine by faith. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness. I have a breastplate in Christ. 
when Satan is coming at us as a people and making us think it's impossible for me to repent. There's no purpose in me even trying to get over my sin. Victory is a long lost cause. That's when we strap on. That's when we strap on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we read what it says in the Scriptures, like 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, God will forgive you of all unrighteousness, that you are, Romans 6, a new person in Christ. Romans 8, he is for you, not against you. You see, you take what you already know, and you believe it in the moment. You take what is already yours, and you access it in the fight. When God is is seeking to make us devour one another and stab one another in the back and break down community. We remember what we studied in Ephesians. We put on the the shoes of peace and we look at one another and say, there is no reason for me to ever have any sort of relationship with these people (laughs) other than the fact that we're both Christians. It is, and I'm not kidding, it is a miracle that this church right now exists. I mean, oftentimes I come in here and I'm like, who are these people? Like, what kind of weirdo comes to a brand new church with a young pastor that says, I want you to give up everything and follow Jesus, let's go, and they show up again. You're a little crazy. And I'm a little crazy. And we need to remember that about one another, that we are in this together, in community, on the mission of God. And when Satan is coming at us, we simply remember what is true, that only the gospel could have brought this group of people together in this time and in this place. It's the gospel. The gospel's true. The devil's a liar. Jesus is for you. Satan hates you. Believe that that is true in the moment. That's why Paul talks so much here about the Bible and about prayer, especially verses 17 through 20. That's the way you access the armor. There's no way you can fight with your sword if you never take your sword out. There's no way you can remember the promises of the gospel when Satan comes to accuse you if you don't know the promises of the gospel. So put on the weapons that are already yours through Jesus Christ. Put them on and fight. Put them on and stand. Put them on and know that you are already more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Lord of the Rings again, two in one sermon. I know I'm killing you. I'm killing you. It's laziness. I'm, you know, when I can't think of an illustration, something from Lord of the Rings inevitably pops up. So, you know, if I'm using Lord of the Rings illustrations, I've just been lazy in coming up with illustrations for the week. Um, book two, The Two Towers. Um, the, the good guys are locked into Helm's Deep, right? Which is this fortress carved into the side of a mountain. And a huge, massive army of orcs is on the way to destroy them and their families who are huddled together in an underground bunker. And as the elves and as the men in their battle gear look out into the dark, rainy, gloomy sky, lightning strikes, and for a moment the battlefield is lit up, and as far as they can see, all there are are ugly orcs wanting to kill them and eat them. And you see and read about their spears shaking and their armor clattering and their teeth chattering. But then Aragorn, the king, who is, by the way, one of the Christ figures in the Lord of the Rings, stands up and he says to them what Paul says to us. Stand your ground. Stand firm. Hold fast. Don't retreat. And then Aragorn jumps in front and begins to fight with his sword. And as Aragorn fights and as they watch him, they are emboldened and encouraged and enthused and they shoot those orcs 
right between the eyes. Listen, Jesus is not only fighting with us, but Jesus has already won for us. Jesus is the victor. Jesus has conquered, and then he gives you his armor. There is no way in any chance that you can ever lose. And when you believe that, you begin to win now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Um, We thank you that you give to us the armor that we need. You give to us the strength that we need to fight against the evil one. And Father, we thank you that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors and already victors. And so we pray that you would help us to implement that gospel and to believe it in the day-to-day battles and struggles that come in our lives. Father, may we be enthused and pumped up and motivated, not in our own strength, but because we believe that your strength is more than sufficient. Help us in these things, we pray. Amen. As we close and uh, enter into our time.